<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The 1970s was an amazing time to be born into the world of cinema. For the first time, it became an academic subject in universities across the country, and many of the nation's largest halls of learning were opening flourishing film schools. It was a decade in which the muckety-mucks of the big studios lost control of their fiefdoms, learned that they had no idea what to do in the post-Easy Rider world when young audiences took control of what they wanted to see, and it wasn't Dr. Doolittle or the standard studio pap of the era. Movies were being taken over by the Young Turks, as young as their audiences, and they took risks. They mixed things up. They were passionate and creative, and in many senses the studios, bewildered by what movie audiences wanted, ceded their power in many ways to the filmmakers who were more closely connected to what ticket buyers were looking for in their entertainment. The old guys in the gray hair and the coats and ties gave way to the new generation who wouldn't be caught dead in a suit. The film schools offered up George Lucas, John Carpenter, Steven Spielberg, and a ton of others. A lot of what happened in the 70s was a flash in the pan before those in the seats of power got a handle on it when a lot of the experimental work at the time crashed and burned in their own conflagrations. But Carpenter, Spielberg, Lucas, and so many more still are making our entertainment, and their influence will continue to be felt for many years to come. Talent is one thing, but versatility and evolution are crucial to long-lived careers in film. Our guest today, John Badham, started directing television in the early 70s, even working on Rod Serling's Night Gallery alongside his contemporary Steven Spielberg. But the range of his work is astonishing and constantly blooming with every change in the heart and technology of filmmaking. You want a musical? Saturday Night Fever. Classic horror, the 1979 Dracula. Cyber thriller, war games. Action thriller, Blue Thunder. Comedy thriller, Stakeout. The list is endless, and he's still going strong. We'll get John on the postmortem slab to find out what makes him tick right after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. For over 15 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. 
Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice for all of the demented discs you have been craving. So where did it start? You were the son of, a, of an army officer. Uh, you were born in the UK. You went to Yale. Where did the love of cinema begin for you? Well, I suppose probably going back uh, as early as five or six years old, my mother uh, was an actress uh, in England. And, and then when we came to the United States after World War II, she uh, started acting locally where we were living in Birmingham, Alabama, Right. And in your in father had originally there. been from Alabama, right? And he was from there, and he brought us. He was a general in the Air Force, uh, had been a, a general in the uh, in in the Army, which then became the United States Air Force mm-hmm. in forty seven. So uh, he, he had lived his whole life in Birmingham, brought us back where he was president of a of a big construction company, and and. Uh, and we started to to live there. It was a very exciting time for me at five or barely six years old, uh, seeing a whole new culture, a culture shock from war-torn England to, you know, a, a racially torn Birmingham, Alabama, wow. which oh, was, yeah. you know, quite a shock to see it, to try to even understand, grapple with what, what in the world is going on with these people. Um, but I, uh, followed my mother around to many rehearsals of plays that, that she was in. And then, so she uh, did theater more than she did theater, but then, uh, she started doing a radio show that she had for almost 20 years. Wow. And one of the first television shows, local television shows like morning chat type things, right. Uh, that, you know, that now the big networks all have. But she was doing that every every day, and I used to go with her. So, so I I really developed a love of theater, and was doing a lot of acting in college and and uh, even in in high school. Um, but then, <clears throat> as I'm starting to think about maybe I'd like to be an actor, I also started to realize everybody else was getting cast, but me. <laughs> I'm getting being told something. <laughs> I'm getting the spear carrier that stands over in the corner. <laughs> I I'm getting the 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 nurse who goes this way, doctor. <laughs> so. And and I thought, what else can I do? And and um, somebody came walking down the hall of the Yale Drama School at this time. This guy's being followed by all of these women. And and I said, who's that? Said, That's the director. <laughs> oh, boy. Boy, can I do that job? Um, and so I started, I literally started directing as an undergraduate at Yale 
and and then went to Yale Drama School. Now this is all theater because so as you theater said, is where it started, and and the difference between cinema and theater seems to be pretty vast. Huge for a director, huge, um, um, and and at and at the time, as as you said earlier, there there were no film courses uh, at Yale, certainly except for maybe a history of film course that was regarded as a gut course Mm -hmm. meaning you just take it because you could go to the movies (laughs) you know once once a week whenever class was uh but nothing nothing serious and people that were working in movies were kind of looked looked down upon but um then a very strange thing happened my mother calls me one day and says your sister mary is going to be in a movie with Gregory Peck. This is amazing. I'm going, what the fuck? <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? I'm up here on scholarship, <laughs> you know, and, and dog sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> and my nine-year-old sister is going to be in a movie with Gregory. How did this happen? Well, uh, when To Kill a Mockingbird was being made as a film, they had had decided that they wanted to look all over the country for who was going to play the three children. Uh, so they came to Alabama. In the film, they came to Alabama, having seen at that point about 2,000 children wow. and, and not getting anywhere. They'd, they'd seen all the Los Angeles children, the New York children, and other big cities, but couldn't find anything that was, that was real. And they went to the local theater, and the artistic director there called my mother and said, don't you have a daughter who's about nine? Why don't you bring her down for this? Right. Um, uh, so she took, she took Mary down there, and, and Mary did a whole improvisation for them that they, they got her to do. Next thing I knew, she was going to New York to be tested, and... And then she got this movie where they were going to pay her five hundred dollars a week. Wow! Whoa! For ten weeks. Wow! Okay. Had she studied acting at all, or it was all you doing all of that and her mother being? I'm an up actor. studying acting and directing and stuff like that, and she's just being Mary and just you being know, a nine year old Southern girl. Yeah, playing playing with her friends and stuff like oh, that. Oh man! And she gets nominated for an Oscar. She gets nominated for an Oscar. It's all very exciting for her. Unbelievable. And and I'm in New Haven in the in the winter time, you know, <laughs> freezing. But you know, it's it's terrific. It's really exciting because we all love the novel, which yeah. was out out by then. Yeah. But when I got out of uh, graduated from the drama school, uh, Mary got a job uh, in a Twilight Zone. Right. And was coming out, coming out to, to be in the Twilight Zone, and I was able to come along. And that was Earl. Uh, Earl wrote that one. Didn't Earl he? Hamner. Yeah, Earl Hamner yes, wrote that yes, one. Yes, you're right. He used Good. To live down the street from us. Oh, okay. And a sweet, sweet man. He, yes, it was an episode called the Bewitching Pool. Right. Right. Uh, so I was able to hang out on the set, and it was the first time I'd gotten to see films being made, and. So that was and, the window to filmmaking from behind the door right. for your first time was on the set of The Twilight Zone. That's right. Wow. And, uh, you know, talking to the producer, 
uh, Bill Frug at the time, who said, well, you know, come out here, look around, see what you can find. Yeah. Uh, I had to do six months in the Army because uh, Vietnam was starting to heat up and, right. and everything was getting intense. Um, so I went and did my, my six months uh, National Guard duty. That's a quick stint, only six months. Well, then you have to do five and a half years of the reserve, reserves, yeah. reserve duty. Hmm. I spent a lot of time at the Van Nuys Airport oh, really? <laughs> on, on weekends once a month. So you came out after Yale. You, you moved out to California? I moved, I moved out here and uh, started seeing people and trying to you know, find a job, any kind of job. Right. Uh, people say, what do you want to do? Well, I'd like to direct. Oh, great. Well, what have you directed? Uh, plays. Mm-hmm. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Go next. <laughs> and, 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 In California, and, uh, they don't know from plays. Right? Plays, play, just, oh, yuck. Oh. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I kept looking and, and, and finally landed a job in the mailroom at, uh-huh. at Universal. Really? Okay. Again, thanks to my sister. Oh, wow. Because I, th- I, think, I think my mom said something to Gregory Peck, who said, well, we'll have him come in and see me. And wow. I went in and talked to him, and he, he called up uh, Jennings Lang, who was the head of television, and, and, and Jennings Lang said, well, send him over to personnel. And, and I put in an application, but the, the uh, HR people said to me, you know, we're not really interested in any creative types. We really oh. want business types here, hmm. you know, to be in our mailroom. I mean, they're going to be part of management soon. Uh-huh, okay, well. Um, and I guess part of the point of the story is, is these kind of accidental things keep happening. Sure. One Friday afternoon in the mailroom, two guys simultaneously said, I quit. <laughs> I can't take this stupid job anymore. Opening the grand position to you of mail. And and suddenly, you know, my name is about on the top of the pile, probably because of Jennings Lang's call. Mm. And and I go in on a Monday morning and meet twelve guys, everybody who has bachelor's degrees and four of us with master's degrees wow. in you know, in some kind of theater or um, or film, and the idea was that you would spend your time in the mailroom not only delivering mail but getting to know all the various departments and the various places and find something that interests you. So if you were interested in being a, a designer, art director or something, you could be hanging around the art department or same right. with cinematography or editing or publicity. There was just so many places to go. You learn so much, so many departments, and it's naked to you then suddenly. Yeah, and and just finding finding what's right for you. And, and they really wanted to see how much get-up-and-go you had on your own. If you, if you were there for a couple of years and hadn't moved out of the mailroom, they would move you out, just say goodbye. Right, churn. Yeah. Next, next. Get Let's good. get somebody else who's got more drive. Yeah. And, and I wound up uh, training as a casting director, yes. uh, and um, 
and you were in casting for I was in I was in casting for a couple of years. Yeah. And doing it, doing shows like like Run for Your Life. Right. Um and and a series called The Bold Ones right. then. And I hooked up with a with a producer, Bill Sackheim, right. uh, who had just come over to Universal and and we hit it off. And next thing you know, I'm helping him. And we did a pilot with uh, Vince Edwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a suicide hotline pilot. Right. Wow, I can't imagine why it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's go watch somebody kill themselves. <laughs> yeah. no, that's entertaining. Oh, <laughs> right, yeah, I hope they do it in the side of the head instead of the front. I'm so tired of seeing that, you know. <laughs> Might work now. Oh, God, not pills again. Uh <laughs> Netflix, do you hear? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but uh, ABC looked at looked at the pilot and they said to Bill, they said, "Yeah, but what's the series going to be about?" Which is a typical network idiotic question, right? You know, you can't tell watching the show, right? Well, Bill decided that we needed to make a little three minute promo where he would have the director Jerry Thorpe and Vince Edwards and somebody else in a projection room, and the lights come up and say, oh, that looks like an interesting, what's the show going to be about? And now the three of these guys would do it. Right. One morning, I, I'm in the shower, and I said, I could direct that. Yeah. I know. I, Bill, is it, could I direct this little promo that we're going to uh-huh. do? And he went, i never forget. He, he didn't even blink. He went, sure, Absolutely. Right. Oh, my God. Your oh first God. celluloid direction. And I've got the crew for an entire day uh, in the projection building at Universal. So rather than just sitting in the projection room, we the lights come up and the guys say, oh, what's it going to be about? And now they start walking down the corridors and down the steps, getting some water and going to the bathroom, but chatting all the way. Right. And... Uh, and we sent it over with the series, which sold. But then Bill said, you know, you could direct a whole episode of this new show we're going to do with Hal Holbrook called uh-huh. The Senator. Ah, I remember The Senator. And, and so I did. I got to direct a, episode number seven. We made eight. Oh, and, squeaked in under the wire. <laughs> and again, here comes luck. Here comes luck. So episode number eight comes along. There's a director who's written the script. Producer wants to make a few little changes in the script. Director gets very huffy and quits. And about the time that he quits, I come walking into producer's office, David Levinson, and he's sitting there with Hal Holbrook, and they look up, and they look at each other, and they smirk, and they said, you're going to do the eighth show. <laughs> And and I and I worked on that. Uh, it came out. It it got really good notices, and suddenly I got an Emmy nomination for my second show. Wow! Like what? And and the producer who the director who quit was totally angry at me. Right. <laughs> He's walking over my dead body <laughs> to get an Emmy nomination with my script. And, and oh my God! Sorry. Yes, <laughs> sorry. So, so that began 
an amazing directorial career. This you step into a lot of people have to go through independent movies or cobble together mm. things. You similar to me, your first job was in network television. And uh, and it's a different experience, but there were so many shows you were in demand. You were doing a lot of stuff and at this time, I guess 1971 or so was when this mm -hmm. started. Mm -hmm. And the night gallery experience is something that'll be particularly interesting to our audience because of the genre trappings. What was that like? Did you work with? I know that Rod Serling really was just the host and not so much creator producer as much as he was on Twilight Zone, but what mm. was your experience on that show? Well, uh, my mentor, Bill Sackheim, was the producer of the pilot uh -huh. that was uh, directed by... Uh, Barry Shear and Boris Segal and Steven Spielberg. Right. His very first professional job. His Joan Crawford episode. His Joan yeah. Crawford episode. <laughs> and part of my job was to, you know, just to stick by him and help him in any way that he needed help. And he was 21 years old at and the he time. And he was yeah. 21 and absolutely terrified of, the, <laughs> of Joan Crawford. <laughs> yeah. He, she invited him to dinner. Uh, and he called me up and said, will you go with me? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll go. Oh, that we we had the most fun dinner ever wow. with her as she dished on Betty Davis and, you know, Hollywood in general. Amazing. And, uh, and, you know, couldn't believe that she was going to be working with a 21 year old director. <laughs> You know, thinking of all the directors she must have worked with. Well, 40 years ago, you and I met doing an interview for the Z Channel. And at that same time, on that same interview show, Steven Spielberg had come on. And I had asked him what it was like being 21 years old to direct Joan Crawford in the yes. show. And he said, what do you think it was like being 21 years old and directing Joan Crawford? He said it was totally intimidating to him. And it was, it, it, even to that day, it, it made him shake a little to think about it. So, Well, he, he just did great. I mean, he was... Oh, it's an amazing you, you would You would not have known that he was intimidated if you were just watching him work. Yeah. And, and work with uh, not only Joan Crawford, but then... When Rod Serling came in to do all the the introductions, he he directed Rod Serling ah. in that and and uh, got the whole style of the show show set up. Mm. Now, what about your work on the show and and your experience with Serling with the whole production? Well, i i got along I got along great with him. Um, my my first interaction was uh, looking at his introduction to the, the pilot episode, and he had written an introduction that was like about a page and a half single space long, mm -hmm. which, as we know, is really long. <laughs> yes. and, and I'm looking at it, and I said to Bill Sackheim, I, this is really long. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should cut it down and not be, you know— throwing away a lot of, a lot of stuff. And, and Bill said, well, call him up and tell him to cut it down. You want me to call up Rod Serling? So I called him up and, and told him, well, he right away started ranting and raving and said, oh. they don't pay me enough 
to do this kind of editorial stuff and really? and uh, and I don't know why you know we need to do this. It should be plenty. Thank goodness I had had some foresight. My brain was actually working that day, and I had suggested some cuts on paper. And I said, "Well, well, Mr. Serling, hmm. what about if we, you know, made this edit right here?" Yeah, yeah, fine. That's good. Okay, good. Great. Uh so that that was our that was our meeting. But uh but the first show that I did on on uh Night Gallery was something called The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes mm-hmm. that he had written and was an original and it was so exciting. It was with uh Ronnie Howard's younger brother oh, Clint Howard. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, who was who was like six years old at the time, An and he had to carry this whole episode. Wow! And he's such a good actor. Well, it, you know, we knew, yeah. you know, Ronnie was a great actor, right? And and I had when I was a casting director, I had worked with Clint on another show, so I knew that he would be just fine. And what was the first movie that excited you? What what made you want to be? A filmmaker was it? You'd already been doing theater, and then this other medium had had the magnetism to you, or was there a movie that made you go, "God, I want to do that"? Well, the things that we were seeing that we were seeing at Yale were Ingmar Bergman, like The Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. uh, the the, the uh, Four Hundred Blows, uh, Godard films. You know, th- those were the classy things. Right, the but art also house fair. The art house stuff. But also, they're running a lot of movies on campus. That's the first time I got to see Citizen Kane. Wow. And, you know, completely swept away by that for good reason. So, so Yale so, is where the love of cinema came from? Where the love of cinema came from and being really interested in the you know, A, not only working with actors, but the whole visual side of it and telling stories in, in that particular way. And um, Do you yet feel I, never, a- I had never taken a, a, a film course by the time I started directing. It was just all by trying to hang around directors like Michael Ritchie and, mm-hmm. and Joe Sargent, Lamont Johnson, guys who were doing television at that time and but Michael doing really was, amazing television and yes yeah. they were terrific and you know studying from them you know hang, hanging out on the set with them watching what they were doing so you you bring a personality to your films and we'll get into the film specifically in a minute that but it's it's a schizophrenic personality you're able to take on a comedy uh, a thriller a horror film a musical and they still feel personal. Uh, is is there? What's your process when you start a movie? Is is there? Do you imbue a personality from the beginning and try to give it a certain language each time out? Well, I think I think when when it's worked the best is when the characters really speak to me, mm. and I and I and I understand the characters usually from a, a kind of a humorous point of view. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that that uh, I loved upon reading the the script for Saturday Night Fever, mm-hmm. which was then called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, 
Interesting. Oh, that's based on a magazine article. Based right? on a yeah. magazine, New York Magazine article mm-hmm. that was called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. <laughs> and uh, Trips off the tongue. And what do I know about Brooklyn? Zip, zero, nada, nunca. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is nothing I know about Brooklyn except it's somewhere close to Manhattan. Right. And And yet that character spoke to me, jumped off the page, and I said, I understand this guy. Even though, you know, I've been in Birmingham for all these years right, or right. or New Haven, which is, you know, more insular type of thing. I, I really get it. I get this family. And um and I was really excited about about it. And 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 so, were you listening to music at the time? Were you uh do you, do you play an instrument? Uh I kinda play the piano. Uh-huh. Um but I did not know who the Bee Gees were. Oh, really? I mean, I just vaguely heard of them. And right. and when I walked in for my first meeting with Robert Stigwood, the producer, he hands me a tape cassette. Now, we all remember tape cassettes, those little <laughs> yeah. square things that would all tangle up and <laughs> yes, get all like screwed up in your car, and you have to throw them away. He said, on this cassette, there are three number one hits. Five songs, the Bee Gees have done five songs here for the movie, and three of them are number one hits. And I, th- I said, are these finished? said, no, they're demos. Uh-huh. I thought, oh, how ridiculous. How, how, how does somebody know that it's going to be three number one hits? We all know, as William Goldman said, that nobody knows anything. Right, exactly. <laughs> and how do you know this? And Stigwood was a manager and owned his record manager, label. Manager, yeah, yeah. And he was a record guy. Uh so I, I said, oh, well, where do they go in the movie? He said, well, that's your job. Uh-huh. I, said, oh. I said, great, thank you. I can do that. Um, I know, I know what to do with these. I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, so, actually, at the end of the day, I was delighted to know that Stigwood was just dead wrong about that three number one hits. Oh, really? Yeah, there were four. Okay. <laughs> It was, oh, God. (laughs) He'll learn his lesson. And the the very last one I put in the movie, because we just had nowhere else to put it, I just kind of slotted it in space. That went turned out to be the first of the number one hits, How Deep Is Your Love. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, directing a musical is, I mean, you're directing a drama for the most part, a very Mm -hmm. powerful, uh, you know, family type drama of of a neighborhood but the rhythm and the way you shoot musical numbers and cut them and and play it to the music and the like is really impressive there's an energy a musical energy throughout that and i just wondered what that approach was from the beginning if if you felt that you were musical before or this brought that out in you and and how how you managed to to fabricate the movie that is so filled with musical life. Well, I had worked during the summers at Yale. I had worked in musical theater Hmm. and uh, stage managed a lot of wonderful musicals, West Side Story and Carousel and Three Penny Opera and things like that, and really enjoyed doing that. I mean, it's just great, great fun to be running a big musical from backstage yeah. And be and be part of it. Um, an interesting thing happened um, 
before getting involved with Saturday Night Fever, which was uh, me going to see in New York The Wiz. Ah. And I learned after seeing it that 20th Century Fox had bought the rights to it, but then got cold feet mm-hmm. and turned it around back to Motown. Or no, just back to the producers. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I went to my friend Rob Cohen, who was working at Motown, and said, why don't we get this mm-hmm. for Motown to do? And so Universal and Motown together bought the rights for The Wiz, and Rob and I started adapting the musical into what would be the screenplay. Interesting. Um, we, were, we were on it for a few weeks, and the call came in that said, you know, we want you to cast Diana Ross as Dorothy. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, guys, since we started this, I've been reading the originals, L. Frank Baum. She was six years old. <laughs> and at the time they made the movie, you know, they put a grown-up, you know, almost grown-up adolescent in there, yeah, Judy Garland. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. But, you know, I totally understood, now I knew six years old, about Tin Men and Cowardly Lions. That's a six-year-old girl's point of view. Right. And that's kind of the way The Wiz is being told on Broadway, too. You know, this little right. girl seeing these fantastical uh, creatures. And with Diana Ross, it seems to me like it would be kind of neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God bless her. She's a great singer and a great actress and, and a wonderful dancer. I mean, <laughs> y- you can't take anything away from her except for it's just like the wrong casting. Right. Um, well, this went on for weeks and... And it got to it got to a head, uh, and I was talking to my father about it. Still a retired now a retired general in the Air mm-hmm. Force, and um, and he said, "Well, Johnny, don't quit, or they won't pay you." <laughs> so I'm going, ah, oh, yeah, you're right, Dad. What do I do? I said, I've got to figure some way. How how can I get out of this? I mean, everybody knew my feelings about it. Right. Uh, and it got down to the point of uh, a big meeting up in the president of Universal's office, in Ned Tannen's office, mm-hmm. and with uh, other biggies, uh, Tom Mount and Barry Gordy came over from Motown. Yeah. And we're going to resolve all this casting business. And I said, you know... I I just I know how to work this with Dorothy and with Diana Ross now, and everybody kind of looked knowingly around the room, <laughs> you know, like okay, the guy's folding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, this meeting will be over shortly here, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was going to be over shortly, but not the way they thought. I said, I saw a movie last week on television with Robert Montgomery, and it was called The Lady in the Lake. Oh, oh. And and they said, yeah, so? I said, Robert Montgomery, it's all done from his point of view. You never see him in the whole thing except maybe his feet or a quick reflection in a mirror. Uh, You know, you just, why don't we do that with Diana Ross where we can (laughs) see her feet, we can hear her sing, you know, but it's all her point of view. 
And 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 they and they go, you're kidding, right? I, I said, no, 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 no. I think this would be really an inventive way to do it. Well, the temperature dropped about forty degrees in in the in the room. The meeting broke up. The next morning, they're calling my agent Sam Adams to say, we're gonna work it out with this guy. Uh, so now there I am, uh, jobless. Wow. Uh, and not a few weeks later, uh, there's going to be a change of directors on tribal rights of the new Saturday night because uh-huh. they're having creative differences right. of, of the first sort. And uh, John Avelson and and Robert Stigwood were butting heads over the script. And Avildsen had done Rocky, famously. Avildsen had a, an Academy Award nomination for Rocky. And like the same day, Stigwood said, well, congratulations and goodbye. <laughs> wow. Uh, and it opened a big door to you. A big door to and me. You'd, ha- you'd only done one movie before that, and that was Bingo Long and his Traveling All-Stars, if I'm not right. mistaken. Right, which, which yeah. was a, had a lot of musical elements in it. Right. And and Stigwood had asked me if I was interested in doing a picture that he wanted to do um, that was called Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, yes. Which I knew to stay away from as far as possible. Yeah. Uh, because <clears throat> the, the, the script was... Just not something I understood. Mm. And blasphemous to those Beatle fans around the world. Yes, and yeah. I was one of the biggest Beatles fans. Me too. You know, with a, yeah. with a giant uh, poster of Sgt. Pepper on my wall. Nice. <laughs> you know, so when I saw the title of the script, I went, oh, no, this is going to be cheesy, maybe. And it was. <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, I was on his mind, and suddenly, next thing you know, I'm being called to come to New York and and take over this script, which I had read here in L.A. and just gone bonkers for. Yeah, said this I understand, this I get, I get the musical side of it, and the fact that on the Whiz, I had been looking at almost every really good musical ever made and mm. studying how the dances were shot and how how the difference between Fred Astaire shooting uh, Busby Berkeley shooting Gene Kelly and Robert Fosse. Right. You know, such different styles. And the Fosse style appealed to me a lot, mm-hmm. you know. But could I shoot like that? Probably wouldn't have that schedule. But, you know, that the energy of the camera work and, and the, the dynamics of it as opposed to the Fred Astaire dynamics, which are much more passive let's just record a stare doing his thing have a get frame him and let him full f- get him full yeah. figure and just kind of just go wherever he goes and that'll be fine as opposed to Fosse, who would go in and shoot inserts of people crooking crooking their little finger mm-hmm. and it would be part of the dance mm-hmm. details and 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 you can see it in especially in all that jazz where he's really comfortable with with shooting dance did that influence Saturday Night Fever? Um, all the, well, no, he hadn't done he hadn't done that all that after, jazz yet. Yeah. By the time I did Saturday Night Fever, yeah. but but I you know watched the work that he had in Sweet Charity, mm-hmm. um, 
So yeah. live musical theater was so vibrant and, and and the music and all so exciting. But there's a lot of cinema at work in Saturday Night Fever. And they work mm-hmm. really well hand in hand. What was your study of the technology of, of how to edit, how to shoot, how to, you know, were there... Were there films that that you uh, were inspired by, or was this something basically you just dove in and attacked it? Well, at, you know, after looking at uh, you know lots of lots of musicals, just starting to get a sense of, of the of the feeling of it, and uh, how how we could best show off the the dances and and enhance them with with how we were shooting, so. It really was a a matter of kind of feel mm. more more than than any specific thing. I so mean, intuition. Yes, really. we're staging it with the choreographer, staging the dance numbers, and then and then working out how we could use moving camera mm-hmm. to to shoot it, and not just have you know big wide static static shots, but get right in there with them. Now this is. At the very birth of Steadicam, mm-hmm. right around right around that time, Steadicam was only two or three years old, and so had did just you have Garrett Brown, uh, and and it? so Panavision had ripped off Garrett Brown. Oh, and and oh. and created a device called the Panaglide, right. which was basically a Steadicam. <laughs> exactly, and Garrett Brown sued the bejesus out of them and won. Mm-hmm. They had to abandon it but at that point in between that's what we were renting and using uh and and the new york camera operators were getting used to using it there weren't a lot of trained steady cam operators around Mm -hmm. uh but between using that and a lot of handheld camera work Mm -hmm. um in some of the in some of the sequences with with Travolta dancing by himself, that big solo dance number he does in the middle, uh, my camera operator was on his knees on a, just a little rolling, like mechanics platform, like you go under wow. a car with, right. <laughs> and 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 the dolly grip, basically taking hold of the operator's shoulder and his belt, oh, and. And 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 moving him around, so that the the dolly grip had been a, a, a circus uh, guy, circus acrobat. Oh my God! So that when you watched them working with Travolta, you had Travolta, the camera, and the dolly grip, and they were all in dead sync with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it was wonderful just to watch the phenomenon of how they did it because. We wanted to get in really tight on Travolta with very wide-angle lenses, so they were maybe 18 inches away from him, but getting you know a, almost a, a uh, at least a knee figure mm-hmm. with the with the wide angle and canting the camera, doing Dutch angles, stuff like that 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 would fit into the composition. Well, there are so many things that were groundbreaking about Saturday Night Fever. First of all, it was a musical, even though it was an organic musical. People went to clubs and danced, and mm-hmm. those songs were were a part of their lives. People don't just suddenly break into song and in the traditional musical form. But also, here comes John Travolta out of television doing Welcome Back, Cotter, 
and uh, he was not a movie star. He'd done The Devil's Reign. But um, how did that happen? That was a big gamble on the part of a movie studio uh, at Paramount at a time when television was the enemy of feature films. They had decided, Stigwood and Alan Carr and Paramount, that they wanted to make Grease. And... uh, Travolta had been in Greece on Broadway mm-hmm. um, and so the, so uh, he'd had so, some television success in not only Welcome Back Cotter but uh, a, a movie for television called The Boy oh. in the Plastic Bubble right. that Randall Kleiser directed. Right. Um, Another film school grad from USC. Yeah. Yes. Um <laughs> And so they made a three-picture deal with Travolta, mm-hmm. uh, who they felt they were getting for next to no money because he was just, you know, at a beginning stage. Um, and the first picture would be Greece. However, they had to wait several months to start it because Olivia Newton-John had to clear her concert schedule mm-hmm. to open up a big enough, you know, 12-week, uh, window to do this in between they're saying what else can we do with this guy when this magazine article came up and suddenly this was saturday night fever what it became was something perfect to slot in while mm-hmm. we're waiting for an olivia newton john mm-hmm. to show up and it will introduce john to to the world of of movies um so that's that's how it that's that how it started, <laughs> and and that was kind of some of the reason for the panic in getting another director involved mm. when the first one was gone because they were under the 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 gun in terms of getting it finished. Right. I had to finish by a certain date because he had rehearsals by oh mid May of of that year, and we just barely finished shooting. Wow! And he had to go into rehearsals like a week and a half later. In a couple of movies where he's in virtually every scene, yes. Yeah, yeah, and he was in, he was in every scene. Well, let's talk about Dracula. How did that come about? I know it was a big Broadway revival uh, of the original Dracula story. Was this something that you pursued or, or the studio came to you because of the success of your movie? Well, Walter Mirisch, uh came, came to me after, after Saturday Night Fever came out and probably uh, prodded by by Ned Tannen and and Tom Mount, who were not angry at me about the Wiz because they were going to go ahead and make that anyway. Right. Uh, but I had a deal at Universal, uh, an indentured you know servitude deal. <laughs> yes. um, and one of those eight year things. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and I you know loved the the original Dracula novel, mm-hmm. which, which I had read and, and, of course, seen the Bela Lugosi films. But the Bram Stoker novel I thought was really, really interesting. Yeah. And I went to New York and saw uh, Frank Langella doing it and, and suddenly got an idea that what Langella brought to it was something that had never been done before, which was a very attractive 
seductive Dracula, not an ugly guy with big teeth, mm-hmm. but something that was very romantic. And and like many bad things in our lives, they're often extremely attractive and seductive. And and that's how people get drawn into them. They don't get drawn into, you know, big ugly monsters right. uh with horrible teeth and big fingernails. Yes, um, you won't be seduced by the golem, yeah. So um so we started to work on it from that point of view and took a different tact from the Broadway show, which had uh gone at it in a satirical way. Mm. And said, well, let's do the old-fashioned 1924 Balderston and Dean play. Right. That was actually what was done for with Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's do it that way, but we'll get drawings and scenery by Edward Gorey. Right. You know, like, like Charles Adams' black and white drawings. Mm-hmm. And all the scenery will be black and white and as though it's drawn on big pieces of paper. A library set, for example, would right. have all the the books drawn out right on the on the scenery, mm-hmm. and and I I said, well, we can't do that. It's just not going to work in films. No, there's a richness and an integrity to the movie that it takes itself so seriously, and that's one of its great strengths, I think, too. And you have Laurence Olivier as well as Frank Langella. I mean, <clears throat> this was a movie you took seriously. Oh yeah, and and you know the treat of having having Olivier uh, be be in it was just absolutely wonderful because I do remember the very first movie I ever got to see in my life was Henry V. Wow, d- directed by you know Laurence Olivier, yeah. and and as I would be talking to him on the set, I would say, sir. Can we do this, or sir? Can we do that, Larry, so you dear ask boy? If it was okay. Larry, dear boy. <laughs> and, and I, and I said, it's it's really tough for me, you know. When I was five years old, I saw you in uh, in Henry V. It's really hard for me to call you Larry. <laughs> so, what was that working relationship? Did you find yourself intimidated by this? this god of theater and film? Well, yes, of course I was intimidated. Uh, Frank, I I had known for several years because we both worked at the Williamstown Theater Festival. Yeah. Uh, and and that was okay. And he was, you know, about my age too. So, so we understood each other. But then you had this icon of the English theater, you know, the greatest, greatest actor of the 20th century, arguably, and um, and yet he was very kind. He was very ill at that point in his mm. early 70s. He had had serious cancer, mm. and uh, and he had recovered enough so that he could do a film with George Roy Hill called A Little Romance. Right. That it, they thought it was a miracle that he was able to ride a bicycle. In in that oh. film, that he had gotten strong enough that he could ride a bicycle oh again, gosh. and uh, it was that was a big deal. And this from an actor who was probably the bravest physical actor mm. that we've ever had on the stage. Mm. I mean, a, a, a guy who would do physical things that nobody else would do. Um, in uh, in performing Coriolanus uh, at the Royal Shakespeare. 
when Coriolanus is, is killed at the very end, Olivier was on a 12-foot high platform above the stage, and he's stabbed, and he falls backwards toward the audience and is caught by his heels every night. Oh, man. You know, however many times a week he was doing this, and that's the kind of physical actor that he typically was. And now to be at a point where it was hard for him to, you know, walk fast. So so you have this, you know, man that have tremendous sympathy for, tremendous admiration for. Uh, but if he wanted, to, if he wanted to do something, you had to take him take him seriously. Yeah. And uh, we had an incident one one day where he has opened up Dracula's coffin, mm-hmm. and and he is supposed to take the the host wafer you know, the religious wafer, mm-hmm. and break it in half and say uh, over over the coffin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I condemn thy spirit or whatever. Olivier said to me, he said, you know, I'm my character is Dutch. And I think I think I should probably say this prayer in Dutch. And and I said, oh okay. He said, you know, because in in the church it's heretical to pray in a language other than your natural language. Oh wow! So I go, okay, all right. <laughs> and we get to shooting it, and I suddenly start to think. I have visions of Walter Mirisch coming and looking over my shoulder and saying, "What the hell is he saying anyway?" And uh, only Walter would be very polite in saying that. He would find a nice way to say it. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, okay, we've got the Dutch take. Would you mind doing one in English? And just just in case there's a, there's a problem. And he says, no, mm-hmm. I will not do that. Mm-hmm. I told you it was heretical. <laughs> and And I said, well... And I kind of started to go through my explanation again about, uh, you know, what if we don't understand it? And and we're now about five minutes to lunchtime. Right. And as we know, this is like a barrier you do not cross. Right. You got to get it and get out of there. And we don't want to come back to this set after lunch. We want to do something else. And and he he said, okay, fine, let's do it. Go ahead. Uh, I know we're up against lunch, so go ahead. We'll do we'll do an English version, mm. and I run back behind the camera and rolling and everything. And I'm thinking, I know what he's going to do. He's just going to dog it through this take, mm-hmm. you know, and say, "Well, I did it." Uh, and suddenly, he does it like perfectly. It <sighs> could not be better. Uh. It's just like so beautifully done. Uh, and cut and print and that's lunch and okay everybody out of here and this, the whole crew is scurrying away from the set and and he says John come here <laughs> and I yes sir <laughs> no no Larry dear boy here but <laughs> yes sir <laughs> he said I only did that take so as not to embarrass you in front of the crew if you use it in the film 
I'm calling a press conference to say that you lied to me. Ooh. Wow. I said, yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> well, I could have probably saved myself the trouble if I had never raised this thing in the first place because right. it played just fine. He says it it's in great. Dutch in the film. Nobody, nobody ever raised a peep about it. And I'm, and I'm yeah. kind of whacking myself on the head. I'm like Dobby in uh, Harry Potter, you know. <laughs> bad Dobby, bad Dobby. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't have had this great story. I know. That's, that's true. Did you like scary movies as a kid? I did. I did. Yeah. Well, I, you what know, were the, the ones that you watched? All of the, the comic books, the scary comic books, you know, oh, Tales from the Crypt and really? stuff like that. Yeah. I love those those things. Right. And the movies as well, the Universal uh, Classics. and I mean, I you know, made, remade one of them. So. Yes. Well, the Universal Classics, even even the picture of Dorian Gray, which mm. terrified terrified me. I hid under the seat of the theater right. <laughs> for half the movie. Wow. Yeah, uh, but yes, I, I I really do like those, and that's why I was so attracted to uh, to Night Gallery, yeah, and The Sixth Sense, and and uh, and oh, the shows yeah. that I've been doing recently. Roy Finnis on The Sixth Sense, right? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. no, no, no at, was... uh, uh, Gary. Oh, yes, I know who you mean. Yes, not not Roy was in the Gary psychiatrist Lockwood. Gary Collins. Gary Collins, that was it. Yeah. They're interchangeable. <laughs> so, um, what was your concept for Dracula? Um, was there an over overarching um, emotion that you wanted to tap into? The was it the marriage of romance and fear, the, the gothic quality of it that you wanted to revive? Because there wasn't much of that at, uh, in 1979 when the movie was made. Well, you wanted to bring to it a, a, a richness, a production quality that had really never been brought to these movies because they were all made on such low budget. Yeah. Uh, even even the Hammer films yeah. of of the time, which started to move in a different direction from the Universal mm. pictures. I mean, first of all, they were the first horror movies done in color. Right. Um, garishly so. And, yeah. and very, very garish, but interesting interpretations of uh, Christopher Lee as Frankenstein. And, uh, you know, the, everything had a fresh look to it. But, but now we wanted to make something that had this, combine this very romantic quality with the very eerie, uh, strange quality of what the Dracula character brought to it, but also the insane asylum. The insane asylum oh, was yeah, a, yeah. you know, a big part of of that period of of time. We set it around, uh, you know, nineteen oh thirteen, I believe, mm-hmm. and just when the world was changing, in in terms of technology, horses and buggies were still there, but cars were just coming in. Right. Women were starting to fight. Uh, that was the year. That was the year that the woman threw herself in front of the horses at uh, at the big racetrack in England mm. as a as a suffragette protesting wow. the lack of votes. So the the women were raising things, and we thought that's interesting for. Uh, for the character of uh, of Lucy, 
Right. So the horror genre has often been a great way to act as a platform for social commentary without it feeling like a sledgehammer to the head. And this is a perfect example. So we wanted to make the the character of Lucy a very strong woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why we cast Kate Nelligan. Right. Who was, you know, not not just another pretty face. Yeah. You know, a very beautiful woman, but very tough and very strong, and you, you know, you always felt it in 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 her acting, and uh, and on the set, her her boyfriend on in in the film uh, was played by Trevor Eve, mm-hmm. and 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 she, I think she intimidated him for almost most of the shoot. Uh, he was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good for the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker? I know you've you've uh, taught in film schools at Chapman and various places, and um, and encouraging young filmmakers and the like. But but as far as your work goes, it's so incredibly versatile, uh, and so many genres so well handled and self contained. How would you describe what you do as a filmmaker? What your philosophy is? Well, I, I, I think I think I'm more of an interpreter than an innovator, hmm. um, and an interpreter in the way that you know many many singers will can interpret different songs. They didn't write the songs, right. but they you know they bring whatever they bring to it. It's part of them, and and when I get involved in something. Uh, I always try to get involved with something that I really enjoy because I know that I'll be able to get inside of it and very respectfully approach what did the screenwriter intend. I'm here because I like what the screenwriter is doing, right. not because I intend to reinvent thing. Can I add? Can I add stuff to it that helps it? That enhances what what the screenwriter was doing. Yes, that I can that I can do. That I I can bring, uh, you know, a point of view to to what the screenwriter intended. So that's that's a, always a big part of my goal is trying to get you know get inside of that. So when doing a film like um, like Short Circuit, mm-hmm. you know, I'm coming at it from the point of view of understanding the robot. Right. You know. Robots have perspective too. And and you know, how 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 is this this creature seeing seeing the world mm-hmm. and uh what's what's interesting uh about about that and the humor the humor of it was tremendous, tremendous amount of of humor. In fact we learned in the making of that film that you couldn't stop putting funny things in there. We kept adding dialogue in in post-production all the time, almost up to the day of release of the film. Uh You know, somebody would think of a joke and you could stick it in number five's mouth because (laughs) there was no sync to worry about. Right, right. And almost anything would work. And the more we did, the more the audience enjoyed it. And... And the more more effective it it was, mm-hmm. but you know there was a t- tremendous synchronicity between my brain, the writer's brain, and and number five and the puppeteers. Right. 
you know, that, that worked, that worked really strongly. And I felt like that was because I, I really got it in the first place right, right away and was right inside of it. I really got Saturday night fever and, and war games. War games. I mean, all these hits uh, for somebody who doesn't know anything about how a movie is made. How would you describe the job of the director? Well, uh, you have to guide a whole company of people from actors, cameramen, editors, sound designers, grips, through a vision that, that you have of what kind of film, what kind of story you want to tell. But for me, you guide it with their help, not with them enslaved to your vision. I'm a great, great believer in collaboration. And, and part of that is, the good part is that you're getting feedback and interesting ideas from everyone. The bad part is that you have to sort out what works and what doesn't. You can't take everyone's idea. You know, some things may be great ideas, but they don't work for your particular film. And only one person can make all of those decisions. And only the only one person, sometimes two people who are very close together, the Cohen brothers, right? Uh, the Farrelly's, you mm-hmm. know, those kind of people that work so hand in hand uh, with each other. But uh, somebody has to be the captain of the ship. You can't have the ship going off in two directions at once. Right. And uh, that's really part of the challenge of how to utilize all the input that you're now encouraging people to give you. Mm. And, you know, the other other directors are saying, no, 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 it's my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. We're just I don't want to hear from these other people. We're just we're this is how we're going to do it. Right. No names, please. On location. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> But, uh, but there are plenty of people who like to work that way. And I'm, I'm not intimidated uh, by other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think I know how to handle them, mm-hmm. even, even when they are the worst ideas <laughs> ever. Yeah. But, but my job in rejecting people's ideas is to keep them so they want to keep coming back with right. more. No. And not have them just shut up. And put out a business because certainly mm-hmm. the fastest way, you know, to get somebody to stop talking to you is just say, "That's the dumbest idea I ever heard." <laughs> you know, why would you do that? And then that's yeah. the last you'll ever hear from. Right. You want to keep them on the team. Yeah. Uh, over all of the years you're doing this, you're still going strong and and working doing imaginative television when you're not doing movies. You're bouncing between media and the like. Uh, just uh, last week, uh, you did an episode of Siren that aired, and this is a, a mermaid tale. So uh, all of this incredibly diverse material you've worked with, what stands out to you that maybe is something that has not been as, as widely seen as some of your huge box office hits and big TV things? What do you wish people would see that best reflects what you do? Uh a film I made with Richard Dreyfuss called Whose Life Is It Anyway, mm. which, uh, which, I, which I really loved 
because it it had a human being in a in an almost impossible kind of circumstance and 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 a very real life kind of dilemma that you find you have a terminal illness that in in Dreyfus' particular case was going to be you know completely paralyzed left only with his voice and how do you deal with that well looking at it from um a very humanistic point of view not um not where we want the hero to succeed as much as we want to just talk about this issue of how do, how do you deal with your life hmm. uh that that's something that that Richard and I were uh really taken with and why he wanted to to do to do the film and uh and to say here we can do something that is not depressing right that actually has a lot of humor to it mm-hmm. the character has great intelligence and humor um and 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 that kind of makes you want him to have what he wants want him to uh not necessarily make the easy choice of saying, no, I'm going to fight this forever, just to say, I'm done with this. This is okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, my choice is I don't want to, you know, stay alive if on. I have to be here in this frozen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, things have changed dramatically uh, so that, uh, you know, there there is hope for people who are paralyzed to right. be able to recover you know things that the the technology keeps growing you know it was better with Christopher Reeve mm-hmm. you know where he was able to keep working and and keep acting and directing right. at the same time and regeneration of nerves but at that time you know you were you were faced with being you know a piece of cabbage in a bed right or or saying no I'm going to be brave and just say that's it that's what I'm doing so anyway, that uh, I didn't mean to get on a on a horse about that. <laughs> no, um, but movies are about stories, and they're about people, and they're but about experiences. I was just completely, uh, you know, caught up in this guy's dilemma. Yeah. Like, what you know, what would you do? You know, how how would you how would you deal with this? And trying to deal with it in uh, with with humor and intelligence is what the character is doing, but still saying. I, I, I don't want to exist in this, this particular way. It's so. an incredibly powerful movie, and I'm hoping that people will seek it out after this conversation. John, thank you so much. We could easily go another couple of hours, and hopefully we will in the future. Uh, but thank you for joining us on Postmortem. I really appreciate seeing you 40 years after we did our first interview for the Z Channel. Yeah, but we're here. <laughs> we are. Isn't this great? We're here. We're still doing this. <laughs> still doing what we do. And it's great. And doing really excellent work. I love keeping up with what you're doing. You know, I I did I did a film about skydiving uh a few years ago with Wesley Snipes hmm. in it. And and he was playing a a a, a detective, an agent of the federal government. Um and gets involved against his will in into into the world of skydiving mm-hmm. so we've got to have uh we've got to have somebody who can double him because we're going to be up there we want to have a you know somebody that that looks like wesley because we're not going to let him do it no 
even though he said, no, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, oh, you know, I bet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you would, but uh, the insurance company is saying absolutely not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, our our stunt coordinator, who was in charge of the skydiving, comes up with with a with a guy from St. Louis who's physically just like Wesley, who's this dark Wesley has very dark skin mm-hmm. and and was a really good skydiver. He comes on the set and I'm sitting by him one day and I said, What do you do when you're not skydiving? He said, Oh, I work in the Chevrolet assembly plant in St. Louis. Wow. And uh I I said, Oh, and I had visions of team building and things like that. I said, well, what's your job there? He said, I put in 204 rearview mirrors every day. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you imagine doing that five days a week, mm-hmm. you know, 50 weeks a year? And here we get to do in making films what we do, where every day it's a different challenge almost every scene is a different challenge and and here's you know this guy that's got this mind deadening numbing kind of task uh thank god that we're so lucky that we can do this so lucky i mean i i every day i appreciate what a great situation we have you know life is good it is good John Badham, thank you for being a great guest and joining Postmortem, and let's do it again soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.